Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Sargon, the mighty king of Agade, am I. My mother was a changeling. My father I knew not. The brothers of my father love the hills. My city is Azuparanu, which is located on the banks of the Euphrates. My changeling mother conceived me. In secret she bore me. She set me in a basket of rushes. With bitumen she sealed my lid. She cast me into the river, which rose not over me. The river bore me up and carried me to Akai, the drawer of water. Akai, the drawer of water, lifted me out as he dipped his ewer. Akai, the drawer of water, took me as his son and reared me. Akai, the drawer of water, appointed me as his gardener. While I was a gardener, Ishtar granted me her love, and for many years I exercised kingship. The black-headed people I ruled I governed. Mighty mountains with chip axes of bronze I conquered. The upper ranges I scaled, the lower ranges I traversed. The sea lands three times I circled. Whatever king may come after me, let him rule, let him govern the black-headed people. Let him conquer mighty mountains with chip axes of bronze. Let him scale the upper ranges, let him traverse the lower ranges. Let him circle the sea lands three times." Well, even though the story ends differently, doesn't the beginning sound a little bit like the story of Moses? And I'm sure that's no coincidence, the whole baby put in a basket and sent down a river type of deal. Yet another one of those recurring archetypical narrative points. This is CJ. Welcome to Dangerous History Podcast Episode 70, DHP Villains, Sargon of Akkad. The passage I just read a moment ago comes from a steel, by the way, that's S-T-E-L-E, known as the Legend of Sargon, which was discovered in the Assyrian city of Nineveh back in 1867. In case you don't know, a steel, spelled this way, S-T-E-L-E, is a slab that is decorated with pictures, writing, or perhaps both, in order to commemorate something. Most commonly, whatever's on there is carved or chiseled, something like that, although sometimes the writings or the artwork are painted on, and typically a steel talks about either a major battle or about the life of a ruler, in which case, of course, battlefield victories would often figure very prominently. Now, these are also, of course, a prime form of propaganda from the ancient world. Often, a ruler's accomplishments would be exaggerated or maybe even fabricated, and of course, his bad deeds and his failures would be left out entirely, other than maybe occasionally mentioning rebellion if the ruler in question had gone in and crushed it decisively. And of course, in these depictions, the barrier between myth and fact is 
extremely porous at best. Even in pictures, when these contain images, the ruler is almost always depicted as physically much larger, sometimes twice as large as his subjects and his enemies or whoever, whatever other people are uh, being depicted. And this, by the way, is one of the oldest usages or versions, we might say, of what it is we call history, our depictions of the past. And this very old usage of history is history designed, above all else, to tell propaganda narratives about the quote-unquote greatness of leaders. In fact, the only earlier version or usage of history that I know of are those tribal mythologies usually passed down through oral tradition that explain where a particular tribe came from and sometimes might also explain how the world itself came to be. But that's about the only real usage of history that I know of that's older than history of what later gets known as court history. History that above all else is concerned with telling the story of the rulers and how how great the ruler is and all that good stuff. Now, history like I try to do here, history that is critical and analytical and attempts to always get at the real truth of things, even perhaps especially if that means questioning sacred cows, that sort of history is a much more recent invention. Um, Really, it only dates to about, at least as far as I know, only about the ancient Greeks which would have been, you know, close to 2,000 years after the time period of Sargon of Akkad. Some of the ancient Greek historians like Herodotus and especially Thucydides were starting to have a more critical view of history, trying to sift through the BS and and get to the truth of the matter. But as far as I'm aware, those are the earliest people that started to do history that way. For thousands of years, history was almost exclusively devoted to Uh, glorifying the powers that be in a given society. And of course, this older propaganda narrative version of history has obviously persisted long past the time period of Thucydides and is still alive and well to this day. And this show at least attempts to counter that sort of history. Now we're talking about Sargon of Akkad. Sounds like a character out of Lord of the Rings or maybe... Conan the Barbarian, doesn't it? But unlike Saruman or Sauron, Sargon was a real historical figure who lived more than 4,000 years ago. Now, detailed information about him and his rule is still rather sketchy due to the scarcity of historical documentation from that far back, and the fact that most of the stuff that has survived the ravages of time about him are things that were actually written long after his death, and of course, even those sources are often semi-mythological anyway, like that excerpt I read at the start of this episode from what's known as The Legend of Sargon. These commemorative steels, or stelae, I guess might be the uh, plural of it, they they aren't known for their objective take and their critical view of the ruler. They're known for lavishly praising him and treating him as being, at the very least, godlike and favored by the gods, and in extreme cases, perhaps even say that the ruler was literally a god. But there have been some discoveries, mostly archaeological in nature in recent years, that have shed a little bit more light on Sargon and the dynasty he founded and the empire that he built. Sargon of Akkad is sometimes given credit 
as being the first ruler, at least known anyway in history, to build a large, centrally controlled, multi-ethnic political entity, i.e. an empire. There are a few other contenders for that dubious honor from a little bit earlier, but Sargon was definitely the first to be really successful at it on a large scale and for a relatively significant length of time. This is a guy who created a pretty impressive, you know, geographically speaking empire that was ruled by his heirs for about 150 years after he was gone. So even if he wasn't technically the world's first empire builder, he was the first to be really successful at it. And Richard Gabriel and Karen Metz in their big book, From Sumer to Rome, The Military Capabilities of Ancient Armies, say that Sargon and the empire he created constituted, in their words, the world's, quote, first example of a military dictatorship, end quote. Now, you don't build one of the world's earliest major empires and the world's first military dictatorship. You don't build that on being nice loving your fellow man, loving thy neighbor as thyself, and that sort of thing. You build that on conquest, brutality, and so forth. And so, for those obvious reasons, Sargon of Akkad deserves a coveted spot in that exclusive bad guy club known as the DHP Villains Hall of Shame. And before we get to the actual rise of Sargon, I want to just talk a little bit about the historical context in which he built this empire, the, the time period and the geographical region where this happened. And we're looking at ancient Sumer and ancient Mesopotamia. Words that are, that are sometimes used interchangeably, and I'm guilty of it myself sometimes, but Sumer is a little bit more specific. Mesopotamia is, is a very large region. Sumer is a part of Mesopotamia in which, in ancient times, a group of people known as the Sumerians lived. Now, when we say Mesopotamia, we're basically speaking about modern-day Iraq and perhaps a, a little bit of stuff kind of to the northwest of that. Mesopotamia is a Greek term. It means land between two rivers. And if you don't know, the two rivers it's referring to are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This area in ancient times was what was known as the Fertile Crescent. The climate was a bit moister and, and better for uh, agriculture than it is today. And this so-called Fertile Crescent in and around the Tigris and Euphrates uh, valleys is often credited as where the first genuine human civilizations arose. And everyone has different exact definitions of what constitutes a civilization. I'm not going to get into the, the details here. Could get digressed for hours just on this topic. But usually it's some combination of fairly significant settled um, cities, sophisticated agriculture, a somewhat diversified economy, you know, not everybody is full-time agriculture. And a lot of times people will also include some, some version of writing as a requirement for a civilization, some degree of what we would think of as politics. You know, I, I'm not looking to, to step into this uh, argument here. Just want to say that this is the part of the world that's oftentimes credited as where the earliest known human civilizations arose. Humans have been present in Mesopotamia since at least the Neolithic era, if not even earlier. And cities developed in this region by about 4000 BC. And before long, some of these cities were actually surprisingly large. Some of them had tens of thousands of residents. 
By the way, I just made a few year references, and I just want to note on the whole BCAD versus BCECE controversy, if you don't know, the older version of dating in kind of Western civilization was BC before Christ and uh, AD, which is uh, something like Anno Domine, meaning in the year of our Lord you know, post-Christ. And sometimes in recent times, people have switched to this BCE taking the place of the old BC. And BCE is supposed to mean before common era, and then CE taking the place of AD, CE meaning the common era. And to me, this is political correctness gone a little bit silly. It kind of reminds me of the French revolutionaries trying to rewrite the entire calendar to make it reflect uh, their concerns. And to me, I don't believe in religion or anything supernatural at all, but I still actually prefer the BCAD because it just kind of is what it is. I mean, when you're using BC and AD as your your dating systems, it doesn't mean you're actually endorsing any religion or anything like that. I, I see it as you're using a landmark. You know, you're, it's just a landmark. BC is a landmark. If I said turn left at the Burger King, if I was giving you directions to some place in town and I said, hey, turn left at the Burger King, I'm not telling you go eat at Burger King or Burger King is the best or I'm endorsing Burger King. I'm just using Burger King as a landmark saying, yeah, turn left at the Burger King. And that's what I mean when I use BC and AD. I'm not endorsing anything. I'm just using those as landmarks. And so to me, this whole replacing it with CE and whatever is, it's just kind of silly and, and a waste of, waste of time and intellectual energy as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, getting back to describing early Mesopotamia, the original people of much of Mesopotamia, especially the most of the southern part, were known as Sumerians. These are a non-Semitic people. And my understanding is that in this part of the world, the distinction between Semitic people and non-Semitic people is primarily due to language. The Sumerians had a different language with a totally separate, you know, root uh, source than did the various tribes and peoples in that part of the world who are known as Semitic. And I'm not a philologist or anything like that, so, you know, not, not my area of expertise or anything like that, but, you know, just pointing out these are, we're going to talk about the Akkadian Sargon's people were a Semitic people. The Sumerians they conquered in Southern Mesopotamia were not. And understand this is some, some combination of ethnic and or language differences between these uh, peoples. Early cities that arose in Mesopotamia were apparently theocratic city-states. I'll define those terms briefly. Theocratic meaning that the religious authorities were simultaneously the political authorities. In other words, the, the priests of the various religions in this area were also the secular rulers as well. And city-state, if you don't know that term, it simply refers to a city that is uh, self-governing and also controls the immediate countryside or hinterland around it. So it's usually a city and then the surrounding agricultural land for some you know, specified distance. And that's a, a sovereign, independent thing. The city and the land around it, it controls. As far as religion, these early Mesopotamians believed that the gods were responsible for either their success or their failure living in this unforgiving environment. The Tigris and Euphrates, while they did create the this fertile crescent where agriculture could be quite productive, they were not as dependable and reliable as, say, for example, the Nile River, where Egyptian civilization arose slightly later. 
The Nile, most of the time, is a very predictable river in terms of when it floods and how much it floods and so on. So it could be counted on for much more consistency. Tigris and Euphrates are a little more erratic. And so you've got these people in this fertile area surrounded by mountains and desert, and you have these rivers that are not always, you know, sticking to the schedule. And then you've got all the, all the other wild cards that can happen as far as, you know, weather problems, uh, crazy barbarians attacking, whatever. And so the people saw their gods and goddesses as being behind all these things for good or for bad. And this gave their priests uh, a lot of power because they claimed that they could influence the actions of these gods and goddesses. Now, religion in ancient Mesopotamia was polytheistic, meaning they acknowledged many uh, gods and goddesses, although typically a city would have its own like one favorite god. And this is similar in some ways to the ancient Greek city states where, you know, they would believe in the existence of all the various Greek gods and goddesses, but they would typically have one one favorite one for their particular city, like their patron. And these early Mesopotamians built these large, impressive temples known as ziggurats in order to be closer to the gods when they did their rituals and things. Each god or goddess would generally be in charge of one or sometimes two facets of life or existence. One of the more important deities was a goddess named Ishtar, no relation to the bad movie from the 80s with Warren Beatty. Ishtar, if you'll recall, was mentioned in that excerpt from The Steel I mentioned before. Ishtar was one that Sargon and his people often referred to. Ishtar was the goddess of both love and war which is kind of an interesting combination. And all I can think of as far as what those two things have in common is that all's supposed to be fair in both of those, right? All's fair in love and war. Now, Mesopotamians tried very hard because they believed that these gods and goddesses controlled everything that was going on in this harsh world they lived in, tried very hard not to offend them and to keep them happy. And like I said before, this this sort of religiosity placed the priests and the priestesses of the important cults of these various deities at the pinnacle of power due to their supposed ability to influence and to interpret messages from these deities. As time went on, these religious rulers in some cases began to be supplanted in political leadership by what we would think of as secular kings, rulers who were really basing their power more on military prowess rather than on them being some sort of high priest or something. But the the new kings never abandoned their connection to religion. They continued to rely very heavily on the priests of their city in order to basically legitimate their rule. They kept a very tight relationship, and this is what's known as the alliance of throne and altar, very common throughout much of human history, where the the secular ruler, the king or whatever he's called, has this symbiotic relationship with the religious authorities, wherein the king will give the priests or whatever they're called special favors, perhaps an exemption from taxation and other rules. Perhaps he'll even get, give them a certain cut of the taxes he collects. And in return, it's the job of those religious officials to tell the people of the kingdom or the city or whatever it is, hey, the king that we have is favored by the gods, chosen by them, and it's up to you to you know, be obedient to him. And, and he deserves your obedience rightfully, you know, divinely ordered. 
These early Sumerian city-states in Mesopotamia also saw the emergence of what many consider to be the earliest known form of writing in human history. Now, writing seems initially to have developed mostly to keep track of ever more complex transactions of goods, and especially to keep records of taxation. You know, who's been paying uh, to their to their local thug, I mean ruler, or not. And this writing started off as pictographs, wherein... You have these little stylized characters that are pictures of actual things. You know, a picture of, um, I don't know, of wheat, for example, would actually mean wheat, right? Literal pictographs. And over time, it started to evolve more into non-pictorial representations of spoken language, but with some pictographs still mixed in. Now, this early Sumerian writing system was known as cuneiform after the Latin cuneus, which means wedge, because they would use a stylus to write into wet clay tablets, and the writing would produce these sort of wedge shapes. If you ever see what it looks like, you can just Google it. It's spelled C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M, cuneiform writing. So they would carve the, the writing, the characters, into a wet clay tablet and then bake it in order to make it permanent. You know, they didn't have paper or papyrus or anything like that yet in this part of the world. Writing was initially an elite specialized skill that very few had, and like I said, mostly used initially to keep track of transactions, tax records, that sort of thing, but over time started to be used for purposes other than just accounting. But still, writing tended to be, largely for quite some time, mostly tied up with the business of the rulers, the business of these early versions of states. And in my readings recently of James C. Scott's book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is mostly about Southeast Asia, he talks about how the various hill tribes and whatnot that try to stay away from being governed by rulers throughout the centuries, how they often deliberately avoid literacy and deliberately avoid crops that are easy to keep track of. And the whole idea is that rulers like to be able to keep track of and know what everyone's producing in their jurisdiction so that they know, you know, who to squeeze. And, you know, you can, you can take people's stuff and their wealth much more effectively if you have detailed information on what everyone's wealth is. So perhaps censuses are a little bit more sinister than you usually think. Now, there was a lot of ethnic diversity within Sumeria, lots of different, you know, tribal identities that people had, but there was nonetheless a high degree of cultural consistency throughout the region. If you look at, there were basically 14 major city-states in early Mesopotamia, and archaeologists find that the evidence indicates there's a high degree of religious, political, social, economic, linguistic, and lifestyle uh, similarities between these various peoples, even though they might have called themselves by a different tribal name than some of the people down the road. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And this part of the world developed the most sophisticated armies and military technologies of the entire Bronze Age. Now, during the Bronze Age, which is usually considered to have 
begun sometime around 3300 3300 BC, uh, which would have been about a thousand years before Sargon. Of course, the key technology of weapons, but also tools and things like that was bronze. And bronze is an alloy of copper and tin. And the two metals both have good qualities and bad qualities, but when you alloy them together, it results in bronze, which is better than either of those two metals a la carte. Copper is relatively common, tin is relatively more scarce. And so during this Bronze Age, the actual ores needed to make bronze became very much a strategic commodity, much like petroleum is today, where the rulers who could secure control of the sources of these ores could make sure they had a good supply of tools and weapons and deny it to their rivals. The drive to acquire and, and control the source of distant sources of these, these ores used to create these metals really helped to create the world's first true empire, which, of course, is the Akkadian. Now, from about 3000 BC until the rise of Sargon sometime around the 2300s or so BC, Sumer, this area peopled by these Sumerians in most of Mesopotamia, underwent a lot of military advancement. There was a lot of war between the various Sumerian city-states, and occasionally they fought wars with people outside Sumeria as well. And from various archaeological sources and things, we can try and glean as much information about how war was actually waged in this time and place as we can. Of course, we can never know anything for sure. What what you do is you take what evidence is available and try and draw as many you know reasonable conclusions from what's there. So, uh, for example, there are lots of these early stelae. Again, I think that's the plural of steel in this sense we're talking about. There's a fairly famous one called the Steel of Vultures that is a pre-Sargon uh, Sumerian steel commemorating the victory of a city-state called Lagash over a city-state called Uma. And the Steel of, Vo- steel of Vultures is called that because it has a depiction of vultures circling on and then in another part of it, I think, feasting on the um, dead enemies. And this steel shows most of the men in the army fighting as foot soldiers in a way that's actually very similar in a lot of regards to the Greek phalanx, this uh, close formation of spear-wielding armored foot soldiers, armored infantrymen. Archaeological evidence indicates that Sumerian foot soldiers had a pretty good helmet that they wore, but had had a form of body armor that was not nearly as heavy duty as the Greeks did later. And I think they didn't even really have much in the way of shields, or at least not, not as good of shields as the Greeks later had. So the vast majority of soldiers in these early Mesopotamian armies are foot soldiers fighting with long spears. The elite, meanwhile, are riding in chariots, which the Sumerians are sometimes given credit for inventing. Usually these chariots that the Sumerians had were four-wheeled. Occasionally they were two-wheeled. These were not as good as some of the chariots that later people developed. Various groups that came later, such as the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and others, significantly improved the chariot's effectiveness and figured out how to make them in much greater quantity than what the Sumerians had back in the days of Sargon and just before him. So in the days of Sargon, the chariots weren't as effective or as numerous as some later uh, peoples developed. And so this meant that while the elite were perhaps fighting from chariots, it was still the, the infantry 
who were the bulk of the army and mattered the most to, you know, whether one side wins or not. Evidence from the steel of vultures and lots of other early depictions and accounts of battles and things from back then also indicate in various ways that it seems that the soldiers in most of these armies were actually professionals. In other words, these were standing armies, professional full-time soldiers, and that their equipment was provided by their ruler that they were you know, fighting for. This, of course, is also a difference from the Greeks later during the hoplite era when you had a militia system where each citizen would own his own weapons and armor. Now, prior to Sargon, a king named Lugal Zagesi of the city-state of Uma took over most of Sumeria, and some experts characterize this as the world's true first empire. Again, it meaning a large, multi-ethnic, centrally ruled political jurisdiction. But either way, whether you want to consider Lugal Zagesi as the first emperor, technically or not, either way, Sargon of Akkad is much more impressive in the scale of his conquests and the duration of his dynasty and so on. As Gabriel and Metz put it in From Sumer to Rome, quote, By force of arms, he conquered all of the Sumerian states, the entire Tigris-Euphrates basin, and brought into being an empire that stretched from the Taurus Mountains to the Persian Gulf and perhaps even to the Mediterranean, end quote. Now, that's pretty impressive conquest in any time period, but especially given the transportation and communications technology of over 4,000 years ago. Now, who was Sargon of Akkad? A lot of this is very, very murky. His origins seem to have been in obscurity. It is unknown when and where he was born for certain. He reigned approximately, depending on which source, uh, approximately 2334 BC to 2279 BC. So, you know, had a good long reign of well over 50 years. Wherever he was born, and, and I think there's some dispute on that, he rose to power in the city of Kish in northern Mesopotamia, kind of north of Sumeria proper. Apparently, he was some sort of a commoner, and he managed to usurp the throne of Kish. Some sources indicate that he was a cupbearer for the king of Kish, and may have killed him and taken the throne for himself. Once he got in power, however he got it, he ended up taking the name Sharukin, which translates as, the king is legitimate. So that's that's some PR right there, right? Oh, I just uh, usurped the throne for myself, and from now on, everyone must address me as, the king is legitimate. And eventually, translated, retranslated, whatever happened to it, Shahrukhin turned into Sargon. Now, even as he conquered many places far from Kish, he continued to have the title of king of Kish, and so did his successors. But funny thing was, the title King of Kish itself started to mean something different. As time went on, apparently King of Kish was supposed to mean King of the World, not just ruler of the city of Kish. And, of course, also not what one yells while spreading one's arms on the bow of the Titanic, for that matter. Luckily for Sargon's propaganda effort, the Akkadian word for the world was Kishatum, which kind of sounds like Kish. So he was able to just keep the title King of Kish, but everyone was just supposed to sort of know, oh, now it means the world, not just this one city. 
And even though that was his title, he made a different city, Akkad, also sometimes translated as Agade, which is what it was um, in the, the excerpt from The Steel I read at the start of the episode. He made this city, Akkad, the central city, the capital of the empire that he conquered. Now, Akkad is, is kind of a murky story, you know, where exactly it was, what happened to it, where it came from. It was a city believed to have been located a couple hundred miles or so upriver from the heart of Sumeria, where the, where the Sumerian people lived. But its exact location isn't known today. Some think it might actually be underneath modern-day Baghdad. Who knows? Now, Sargon and his people, the people of his his uh, cities of Kish and later of Akkad, they were Semitic and technically, therefore, were a distinct ethnic group from the Sumerians. But according to some sources, Sargon wasn't really considered a foreigner, at least in the full sense of the word, by the Sumerians, even though he came from a people that spoke a different language. Again, it's this very complicated situation, as in many parts of the ancient world, where the um, ethnic differences are a lot fuzzier than you might think, and there's all these cultural similarities even between groups that might consider themselves ethnically different. So some sources portray it as Sargon was a totally different ethnic group and cultural group from the Sumerians he conquered, and other sources portray it as, no, it was actually very similar um, they didn't even really consider each other foreigners the way we would think of that term today. I, I don't know. But regardless of how much cultural similarity or difference there was, or whether people thought of Sargon as a foreigner or not, you know, the people he conquered in Mesopotamia, the fact of the matter is that one way or another, Sargon's conquests and his rule, at least for, you know, well over a century, ended the system of self-governing city-states that had characterized Mesopotamian history up to that point. There had been guys before Sargon who maybe managed to take control of several city-states at once, but still, that's not the same thing as conquering this massive piece of territory and putting it all, at least nominally, under your control. Sargon's reign lasted for over 50 years and it's believed in that time that he fought over 30 wars. Uh, the most common number I've seen is 34 wars. So that's, you know, almost one war, what is that, 1.5 wars, I should say, per year that he reigned. That's pretty significant. Oftentimes in standard narratives, you see, standard narratives of political history usually, usually, are from the point of view that bigger uh, political entities are always better, that centralization is always a positive development, and so on. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, here you have a guy creating a big uh, empire, and, you know, one of the things you're usually told is kind of a positive side effect of massive empires is that they create peace. You know, people will say at least even if there is a bit of heavy-handedness and oppression and so on, at least it prevents the constant warfare you would get if you had a whole bunch of small political entities in one neck of the woods. But in reality, that's not even true, at least not in many cases. Very often, the big empire still just creates more wars as it looks to grow and as it constantly has to put down resistance and rebellion internally. And Sargon really was all about the military power. That was how he got his, his power and his prestige. That was how he kept it. All known inscriptions that were done 
by his scribes, you know, about his reign, deal with war and military activity in some fashion. Now, like I think I've mentioned before, Sargon's imperialism was both encouraged and made possible by increased uh, metallurgy technology in the centuries prior to, you know, his life, especially in the case of bronze weapons. And I say this imperialism was encouraged by bronze technology because of the desire to control strategic ore resources, and it was made possible by this um, metallurgy technology because superior weapons and armor helped Sargon to defeat his opponents. So you have this situation in which the desire to secure access to the necessary ore is a drive for imperialism, and the better weapons you produce with that ore allows your imperialism to be more successful. Starting from the city of Kish, Sargon began conquering surrounding territories. He started kind of from central Mesopotamia and began working his way outward, initially mostly southward and then kind of north-northwestward later on, in order to assure control of important cities, trade routes, ore, and other resources. And of course, the whole time he's conquering, he's enslaving peoples, he's confiscating people's property, uh, confiscating people who were already enslaved to somebody else, all this sort of stuff. And of course, all the death and destruction and, and plunder and murder that was typical of war back then and really for most of human history. Sargon was just doing it on a larger scale than anyone we know, ha we know of had up till that point. Sources indicate his army was over 5,000 men. Now, this might not sound very impressive today, but in the 3rd millennium BC, if these numbers are correct, and it is plausible, by the way, when you look at the resources he would have had at his disposal, if those numbers are correct, it would make that army definitely the largest army we know of from that time period. Relatively little is known about the details of the administration and the logistics used by Sargon to support and run such an army, other than that they would have um, definitely had to have been quite sophisticated in order to successfully sustain this army for as long as you know Sargon reigned and then continually under his successors. Now, he's known as Sargon of Akkad, but that's not where he originally hailed from. He came to power in Kish. And I think sources are contradictory on where he might have even been born, if anyone even knows for sure at all. He might not have actually been even born in Kish. But he's known as Sargon of Akkad because once he started building his empire, that city became his capital. And there's conflicting reports on whether or not he built the city of Akkad from scratch, or whether there was a city there that was kind of a minor, insignificant little city, and he sort of took it over and renovated and built it up to make it into a capital. But either way, once his reign was really in full swing, Akkad was his capital city, and all of the imperial plundering and taxing and so on, you know, tended to always send cuts of wealth to the capital city, and as a result, it became a, a large, wealthy city. As is always the case, the imperial capitals of empires tend to pull a lot of wealth to themselves. <coughs> DC, <coughs> excuse me, has something in my throat there. Yeah, all you have to do is contrast, let's just take a, a, some random examples, the local economy of Detroit with the local economy of the Washington, DC metropolitan area, and uh, I, I rest my case. 
Now, Sargon stationed his main force of his army at Akkad with smaller garrisons stationed at strategic points throughout the remainder of his empire. And this city quickly became, like I said, a bustling imperial uh, metropolis, tribute brought in from all around and so on. And it was the biblical description of this city by the name of Akkad that we get you know, Sargon of Akkad and the term Akkadians for Sargon and his people and so on. They themselves, I believe, called the city Agade with a G. Now, one of the first big opponents that Sargon faced when he started expanding his empire was the forces of a king named Lugal Zagesi, the king of the city of Uma, who had already himself, prior to Sargon arriving on the scene, built an early version of an empire by conquering multiple city-states and uniting them under his rule. And one of Sargon's first major victories was taking the city of Uruk, which was part of Lugal Zagesi's empire. And then eventually he took Uma itself as well. Sources say that when Sargon took Eventually, after a couple of battle victories, King Lugal Zagasi prisoner, he made him wear something like a dog collar in order to humiliate him. And so far, anyway, I was unable to track down exactly what may or may not have happened to Lugal Zagasi. Was he kept alive as sort of like a, a trophy and whatever by Sargon? Or was he, after being humiliated in this dog collar, was he, you know, executed, tortured, whatever? I, I'm not certain. Well, after conquering all the way southeastward um, down the, the Tigris and Euphrates valleys, the Fertile Crescent, to the Persian Gulf, Sargon, with much fanfare, washed his weapons in the sea of the Persian Gulf in order to symbolize his conquest of Sumeria. And thereafter, he turned his attentions northward to conquer the remainder of the Fertile Crescent region. And we don't always have huge detail the way we would with wars and battles and things that come, you know, centuries later about exactly what went down. But we have little bits and pieces here and there from the various stelae and the occasional other source or work of art depicting this sort of stuff. But the little bits and pieces we get are very revealing that this is a guy who was pretty brutal and total in his conquests. For example, when he took the city of Kazala, sources say that he destroyed it so completely that a bird wouldn't be able to find a perch anywhere in the rubble. Not only did he conquer places, but of course Sargon was very keen on reorganizing them and running them in such a way as they would all benefit his power and his state. In A History of the Ancient Near East by Mark van de Mirup, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, it's a, it's a strange to me Dutch name, um, the author writes this, quote, A new system of government had to be developed. The formerly independent city-states needed to be integrated within a larger structure in every respect, politically, economically, and ideologically. Politically, the original city rulers mostly remained in place, only now acting as governors for the king of Akkad. The term Ensi, which in the early dynastic period designated independent rulers of certain cities, now became used throughout Babylonia to indicate governors. This system did not work, however. Sentiments of independence could be rallied around native governors, and over the entire period, the Akkadian kings had to deal with a number of rebellions. 
Still, centralizing policies were actively pursued. A new system of taxation was developed, in which part of the income of each region was siphoned off and sent to the capital, or used to support the local Akkadian administration. In the reign of Naram-Sin, who by the way was Sargon's grandson, a standardization of accounting is visible in certain levels of the administration in order to facilitate central control. For those aspects of the economy that concerned the crown, scribes had to use a standard system of measures and weights. The shape and layout of the accounting tables, the accounting tablets, excuse me, and the formation of the cuneiform signs were centrally prescribed, end quote. And in addition to that, the scribes throughout Sumeria had to learn Sargon's Semitic language, the language of the, the north, which became known as Akkadian. And they at least had to know and be able to use this language for any document that might be of concern to the central government. Now, notice with all of this standardization and this uh, extraction of wealth, more on it in a moment, you've got already over 4,000 years ago, a lot of bankster and control freak elements going on way back in the middle of the Bronze Age. Now, aside from just good old-fashioned taxes and plunder, Sargon and his successors would also confiscate estates from wealthy locals and parcel them out to their own lackeys in a manner that somewhat anticipates some of the real estate tactics of 1G Washington. Sargon and his successors also tried to unify the religious pantheon of the region and to connect it with himself and with his family. So, for example, he made one of his daughters the high priestess of the moon god at the city of Ur, which was a Sumerian city in the south. And this position meant that she was now considered to be the moon god's wife, this Akkadian woman, this Akkadian princess, now in the Sumerian south. So that's another common imperial tactic is bringing in your own people and making them the elites over these conquered peoples. At its peak, Sargon's empire encompassed modern-day Iraq and Kuwait, as well as parts of Syria and even some parts of Turkey, making it quite large in this era that was characterized by small city-states and and kingdoms that in many cases were just a handful of city-states unified together under one ruler. And the Akkadians may have made various types of incursions into other areas even further abroad than that from them as well. According to a series of tablets known as the Chronicle of Early Kings, the latter part of Sargon's reign was full of lots of problems, including famine and rebellion. Here's what the Chronicle of Early Kings says about this time period. Quote, Afterward, he attacked the land of Sabartu in his might, and they submitted to his arms, and Sargon settled that revolt and defeated them. He accomplished their overthrow, and their widespreading host he destroyed, and he brought their possessions into Akkad. The soil from the trenches of Babylon he removed, and the boundaries of Akkad he made like those of Babylon. But because of the evil which he had committed, the great Lord Marduk, which by the way was one of the Mesopotamian gods, was angry, and he destroyed his people by famine. From the rising of the sun unto the setting of the sun, they opposed him and gave him no rest, end quote. So very problematic, and you can see how they're trying to link this all to supernatural causes and the gods and goddesses, which I'm sure most of the people at the time period probably did believe. You know, that was, that was their universe, that was their worldview. They thought there was a supernatural explanation for almost everything. 
Now, after Sargon's death, he was fairly old, probably in his 70s or maybe even his 80s when he died. His son Rimush inherited his father's throne, and pretty much immediately upon the death of Sargon, rebellions flared up in various spots of the empire, and Rimush had to, had to reconquer much of Sargon's empire, but was basically successful in doing so. And Sargon's heirs ruled most of the empire Sargon had created for about 150 years. Sargon's grandson, Naram-Sin, is considered to be the other so-called great king of this dynasty. And we have a decent amount of information on some of his military operations. In terms of widespread geography, they're very comparable to those of his grandfather, Sargon. Though, interestingly, he apparently had to reconquer many of the same places that Sargon had previously conquered, indicating that there's either a significant amount of rebellion going on in many cities of this empire, or perhaps indicating that some of Sargon's victories that he claimed were, you know, conquering people may have only been large-scale raids in the first place, not really complete conquests. Now, Naram-Sin was apparently also even more full of himself than Grandpa Sargon had been. He took for himself the title of, quote, King of the Four Corners of the Universe, end quote, and even had himself officially declared a god after he defeated a rebellion. This was, by the way, the first time we know of in Mesopotamia that a ruler had gone that far. They often claimed to be favored by the gods and things like this, but this was a new one, a, a guy who was still living, saying, yes, I am now a god. Mark Vandemirup writes, quote, Conceptually, this placed him in a very different realm from previous rulers. Earlier kings had been offered a cult after death, but Naram Sin received one while he was still alive. End quote. Of course, despite his achievement of living god status, Naram Sin still died, and his dynasty didn't last much beyond his death. One of the reasons this empire fell was due to attacks by a so-called hill people, a tribe called the Guchins, who seem to have come in, as is so often the case with these sorts of outside barbarian attackers, at a time when the empire was already significantly weakened by internal political and economic problems and weaknesses and rebellions and so on, just like in the case of the Roman Empire, uh, the various empires that I covered before that suffered greatly during the Bronze Age collapse, you know, you have these so-called barbarians who are always kind of a nuisance on the fringes of your empire suddenly become a serious threat when it's obvious that your empire is really, really uh, shaky. So classic case, uh, you have these internal weaknesses in Sargon's empire, and then you have these outsiders seizing the opportunity to come in uh, in force. So approximately 150 years after Sargon built his empire, his uh, empire and his dynasty were out of power. Sargon really was the prototype of the power-hungry psychopath who usurps a position of power and then proceeds to go on a self-aggrandizing rampage of destruction and conquest. Like so many later bloodthirsty psychopathic narcissists, he had scribes make up legends and myths about his origins and conquests and his supposed connections with the gods, as men of this type so often do, in order to make his decades of murder and destruction appear to be somehow legitimate. Sadly, many people then and later 
did in fact see Sargon's wars as legitimate and considered him the greatest king of his era. Now keep in mind what little historical evidence we have that links us to Sargon's time is heavily skewed in favor of the elite, especially the kings and the high priests. Therefore, we just don't know huge amounts of details about how average people lived, other than what we can glean from physical archaeological remains. But just imagine you're a typical rank-and-file resident of a city in ancient Mesopotamia. You might be a slave. Like all ancient societies, this was a society built and maintained by slave labor, and huge percentages of the populations of most cities would have been slaves. Perhaps you might be a poor but nominally free person. You've got your local city assholes who are in charge, who take some of whatever it is you produce, and often use it for their own aggrandizement. But these local elites do, at least some of the time, use some of your taxes for some things that might actually benefit you, such as irrigation projects, defense from outside threats, that sort of thing, kind of basic infrastructure. And then along comes Sargon, and he takes over your city. He kills and or enslaves a good amount of your city's people, maybe including you, maybe some of your kin. But let's say you're not killed. Perhaps he leaves your local elites nominally in charge of the city as his local sock puppets for a while. More likely, he replaces them sooner or later with his own people. Doesn't really matter in practice whether he left the old oligarchs in place or replaced them with his own people, because either way, now, not only are you paying to support your local assholes, but you've got to pay even more to the local assholes so they can send the proper cut up to their new imperial overlord asshole. If you're only looking at these conquests from the perspective of the conqueror, as is so often the case, they may look exciting and glorious and sexy and cool and badass. But if you look at these conquests from the perspective of the victims, especially the vast majority of the quote-unquote average people who are rarely, if ever, part of the written record at this time, and really not a whole lot for much of the rest of human history, things begin to look very, very different. This king is sometimes called Sargon the Great, and this, of course, brings up the question of what greatness is. Is greatness political power? Is greatness conquest? Is greatness the ability to get large members of human beings to commit horrible atrocities on your behalf? Is that what greatness is? Should that be what greatness is or how we perceive greatness? Well, I think that Sargon of Akkad was great in a way, just like Catherine the Great, Frederick the Great, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, Peter the Great, Ramses the Great, and all the other power-hungry psychopaths who are willing to sacrifice mountains of human beings to try to satiate their own vanity and bloodlust, and who are happy to live in luxury in the wealth expropriated from quote-unquote their subjects. Lots of people know, and very often misquote, Lord Acton's famous saying that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But they often don't get the rest of the statement with that quote. It's actually part of a larger statement with more detail. Here's the full quote from Lord Acton. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you super add the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority. End quote. 
I'd, of course, agree, although I'd probably leave out the qualifier tends to from the first sentence and perhaps also the qualifier almost always from the second sentence. But maybe one way to reduce the tendency of these great men to gain so much popularity and allegiance in the future, because that this is the real problem. Not that there's psychopathic assholes out there. There are always going to be a small percentage of human beings that are that way. By themselves, they can only do so much damage, though. The problem is not the psychopathic assholes. I mean, kind of. But the real problem, the larger problem that makes their problems into humanity's problems is the willingness of so many people who are not really total psychopaths to follow their leaders, to follow those that they perceive as legitimate or they that they perceive as great. That's the real problem. If you take away, for example, the willingness of so many millions of ordinary Germans who probably clinically were not psychopaths to obey orders, then Hitler is just, you know, some ranting asshole on a street corner that no one's paying attention to. So to me, an important project of humanity ought to be to reduce the ability of these psychopaths to attract so many followers among so-called regular people, you know, people who are not clinically psychopaths, I mean the ability of these people to get so much allegiance. And so I think maybe one way to reduce the tendency of these great men to gain popularity and allegiance in the future is to start calling the so-called great men of the past and women on occasion, like Catherine the Great, by more accurate names. So maybe how about instead of Sargon the Great, we could try Sargon the Psychotic Murderous Control Freak. I know it's not as catchy, but... Maybe it's more honest, maybe it's more accurate, and maybe it will cause more regular people to think for themselves and to question whether or not they should obey people, even if, like Sargon, they claim to be legitimate. Remember, the very name Sargon is a version of the king is legitimate. If you have any comments about this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for the episode on my website, profcj.org. You can also email me about this or anything else that's even remotely related to the show. My email address is profcj at profcj.org, profcj at profcj.org. Remember, you can also connect with and follow the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of places such as iTunes and Stitcher. Another way you can subscribe and get updates, not just when I do a new podcast episode, but whenever I do, whenever I post anything to my website, is to put in your email in the email subscribe thing along the right-hand side of my website. And I'm not going to spam you, send you junk mail, whatever. All you'll get if you sign up there is simply an email update every time I post something, which most of the time is a new episode posted every now and then it's some other kind of announcement or something. Maybe uh, I'm announcing that I appeared on another podcast or some other thing uh, about something I'm doing or something going on in dangerous history podcast land. So please consider signing up with your email there to get updates every time something new gets posted at my website. Remember, there are a variety of ways you can help support this show if you enjoy it. One is to spread the word about it any way that you can to people you think might like it. Also consider leaving a review or even just a rating in places like iTunes and Stitcher in order to encourage other people to give it a shot. And of course, if you enjoy this show, want to see it continue to grow and continue to improve and 
continue altogether, you can help out financially in a bunch of different ways. Go to profcj.org slash donate for more detail on lots of ways you can do this, but I'll just mention a few here. Of course, you can set up for one-time or recurring donations via PayPal. You can also donate via Bitcoin. And big news, I finally finished. It had been most of the way done, but I, I just couldn't find the time to put in the last few touches. I finally finished setting up a Patreon page for the Dangerous History Podcast, which you can find if you go to patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. That's patreon.com slash slash profcj. By the way, I did also link to it from my donate page as well. So you can find it there if you don't want to jot this down right now. But there you can sign up for a set donation amount per episode. If you're not familiar with Patreon, I just found out about it about a month ago myself. It's a really neat service where people who are creators of some kind of content can set up a page and their fans, their supporters, you know, their listeners in the case of podcasts can then pledge to donate a set amount per whatever it is you're producing. So in the case of podcasts, you can set up to donate a set amount per podcast episode that I produce a buck, three bucks, five bucks, whatever you like, basically figure out whatever the financial intersection is of how much you value this show versus how much you can afford. I know everybody's got, you know, different amounts of extra dough lying around. So there you go. I usually put out on average about an episode per week, occasionally two. But with Patreon, the cool thing is, if you want no surprises, you can put a monthly maximum to your donations. So for example, you could pledge to donate five bucks per episode, but then set a monthly max of 20, so that even if I put out more than four episodes in a particular month, you don't have to worry about getting charged over your maximum. And of course, another way you can help out the show financially is to purchase things from Amazon.com by first going through any of my Amazon affiliate links on my website. And if you do that, I get a small percentage from Amazon and it's at no extra cost to you. Huge thank you to everybody who's been supporting the show lately. I could really use any help to keep me and keep this show financially afloat. Uh, for example, I just ordered, thanks to the generosity of Dangerous History Podcast listeners who've donated and purchased stuff through my Amazon links, I just ordered a new computer, which I sorely had needed for quite a long time. So thank you to all of you who've helped out in any way financially. I hope this episode has been interesting and enlightening for you. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. 